Turn with me, if you will, to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Gospel of John, chapter 2. This is wedding feast weekend at uh, the chapel. Yesterday, uh, Bethany Beerlink, who grew up in this church, uh, started playing the piano for our worship probably when she was 13 or so, married uh, Pete Hilt. It was a beautiful ceremony accompanied by all the joy of uh, a wedding feast. And then this morning we come to the Lord's table, uh, a sacrament which, among other things, points to the great and final wedding feast. And so you can understand why my heart has been turned to John 2 uh, this week. There we have recorded the first miracle of Jesus, a miracle at a, at, at a wedding feast, in which he turned water to wine in Cana of Galilee. But this miracle also points us, I think, to the truth that we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. So uh, if you don't mind, let's re-examine this uh, wonderful account. John chapter 2, the first 11 verses. Let me uh, read it. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washings, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water out knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This is the first of the miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory. And his disciples put their faith in him. Make no mistake, a miracle happened here. The large number of pots, Jesus' uh, command to the servants to make sure they were full to the brim with water. The huge amount of wine then uh, created. And the independent testimony of the master of the banquet, who would be the best man or the master of ceremonies. All those things confirm this eyewitness account that Jesus turned water into fine wine. Not just a sip that some religious zealot thought tasted kind of like wine, but plenty of wine for the whole crowd, about 150 gallons. Well, there's no mistake. Here Jesus did a creative miracle. The question is, why? What should we learn from this? What's its significance? So I want to suggest this morning three truths that I think are driven home to us by this miracle. The first is this. Jesus blesses life with joy. Jesus blesses life with joy. In the 14th chapter of the book of Romans, there's a verse which says, for the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
Dr. James Montgomery Boyce made an interesting observation about that text. He said, in our day, many Christians have gotten the part of right, about righteousness right. Many even have peace. But as I look about at contemporary Christianity, it seems to me that many are sadly lacking in joy. They have the doctrine right and are even secure in salvation, but there's none of the supernatural joy and exuberance that is to be one of the outward marks of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in a Christian. In contrast to what may be our experience, this account shows that Jesus blesses life with joy. Think about the setting of this first miracle of Jesus. It was a wedding party. Now, in that culture, wedding parties were huge events. They probably lasted a week. I know Christians that would not even go to such a party. Or they might go to the wedding ceremony and skip the party, especially if there's going to be drinking there. Truth is, I know a lot of people who would never invite a Christian to a party, especially a pastor. Obviously, he would be out of place. But Jesus was not out of place here. As we read through the Gospels, it's obvious Jesus was welcome and perfectly at home in the company of people having a good time, even sinners. William Barclay writes, Jesus was no severe, austere killjoy. He loved to share in the happy rejoicing of a wedding feast. And so here in the little town of Cana in the area of Galilee, in the home of some common folks who were poor enough that they cut it too close on their provision of wine for the wedding. Here we find Jesus, the eternal word, the Son of God, the Messiah, bringing joy. And why did he do such a miracle in this home? It was to save a young bridegroom from being humiliated. It was an act of kindness to keep embarrassment from ruining a special day. Now, just as an aside, I know some of you might be a bit bothered that there was drinking there and that Jesus was associated with it. I remember an old friend of mine going to great lengths to convince me that this was not real wine, it was only grape juice. His impassioned conclusion was this, my Savior is no bartender. Well, he was right. Jesus certainly never condoned drunkenness or debauchery. Jesus would not have approved of the bar scene as we know it. But having said all of that, and I hate to burst my old friend's bubble, Jesus did turn water into wine, real wine, and to say anything less is to play fast and loose with the Bible. But folks, this is consistent with God's word elsewhere. Psalm 104, 15 praises God for, quote, making wine that gladdens the heart of man. Does that mean drinking's all right? Well, yes and no. The Bible does not condemn drinking altogether. It does not say that holiness depends on total abstinence. The Bible does repeatedly warn against and condemn every occurrence of drunkenness, warning us that wine is a mocker. 
Alcoholism is wickedness. We must take every step necessary to flee from it. Jesus did indeed associate with drunkards and thieves and prostitutes, but he never approved of sinful behavior. Not then, not now. Our problem sometimes is that in Jesus' name we've gone too far in the other direction. We sometimes tend to be joy, uh, against anything that seems like a joyful celebration. Again, listen to Dr. Boyce's comment. He said, some Christians go around with grim looks and long faces. If they ever find themselves in the company of someone who's having a good time, they immediately suspect that the cause of the fun is either illegal, immoral, or fattening. Jesus was not like that. He did not condemn those who were enjoying themselves, and he was not jealous of them. As a result, he was welcome in their gatherings, and those who had invited him listened to his teachings. So this morning I challenge your stuffy view of the Savior, if that's what you have. I'm afraid he would be very unwelcome in many church circles, but perfectly at home with people whom we might not invite. Jesus blesses life with joy. So if you'd be like him, your judgmental attitude has to go. Your idea that joy is suspect will have to go. Your notion that you're keeping yourselves holy by having nothing to do with non-Christians will have to go. Your long face and lack of sense of humor and lack of zest for life and black clothes and hushed tones, they have to go. Jesus blesses life with joy. Don't come to this table this morning thinking that you're pleasing God by being miserable. He has come that you might know abundant life, the joy of his salvation. The Bible tells us things like that. The fruit of the Spirit is joy, we read. Be glad in in, in the Lord, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart, we read. In thy presence is fullness of joy at thy right hand, There are pleasures forevermore, we read in another place. Our kids sing this, one of my very favorite of our Sunday school songs. Joy is the flag flown high from the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. Jesus blesses life with joy. He did at the marriage feast. He still does today. Now once we understand that, that's a liberating truth. We don't have to be afraid to enjoy life. We don't have to think that we need to be miserable all the time. But almost immediately, we then begin to be tempted to use Jesus then for our own purposes, to make us happy and enhance our pleasure and serve our plans. I mean, he wants me happy, right? So he must do whatever I want. Well, before we start down that road, let's hear the second truth our text teaches us. Jesus does not compromise his plans. Jesus does not compromise his plans. In American politics, we long for leaders who will not compromise, who will, not, who, who will pursue a righteous agenda with single-mindedness, no trade-offs, no con- concessions, no deals. Just do what we sent you to Washington to do. The problem is, of course, in order to ever get to Washington, A politician has already made so many deals and compromised so many times and become indebted to so many people that such a simple agenda is never possible. 
But Jesus is not like that. Here we see that he pursues his plans without compromise. We learn this in the troubling exchange that he had with his mother, Mary. Look at verses 3 to 5 again. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Though Jesus had never before done a miracle, Mary knew who he was. She had heard the, the angel's announcement about the baby she was to bear. She knew she was a virgin when she conceived. She had undoubtedly seen how the character of his life agreed with his identity as the Messiah, the Son of God. And she was undoubtedly accustomed to depending on him. He was 30 years old now, you know. So now the wine had run out and there was a crisis at hand. Mary apparently had something to do with this wedding celebration. I don't know if it was her friends or family, we don't know. And so she decided to ask Jesus to do something about it. We're not told exactly what she had in mind, but certainly as a mother, she had the right to ask for some special consideration from her special son. Oh, but Jesus doesn't do business that way. He does not compromise his plans. This explains the way Jesus addressed his mother. He calls her woman. A title of respect, but not a title of intimacy. It's a, a term similar to what you would hear in the Deep South when someone says, yes, ma'am. Ma'am is respectful. It's not close. And then he challenged her request, why do you involve me? Literally, he said, what to me and to you? D.A. Carson explains this phrase. This expression always distances the two parties. The tone is not rude, but it is certainly abrupt. Jesus, by rebuking his mother, however courteously, declares at the beginning of his ministry his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. He has embarked on his ministry, the purpose of his coming, his only lodestar is his heavenly Father's will. Jesus pursues his own plan without compromise. Here Jesus made clear that Mary does not have some special status to appeal to him, some inside track as his mother. She came to him with just such a notion, but he gently rebuffed her approach in order to pursue his own agenda in his own way. This was undoubtedly hard for Mary, this change in relationship, but she submitted herself to it. She came as his mother, seeking favors. She left as his disciple, trusting him, waiting on his agenda, advising the servants to do whatever he said. She came as the mother, kind but manipulative. She left as the daughter, trusting his wise and capable care. Folks, here we see the error of those who, albeit in good faith, would pray to Mary, thinking that she has some inside influence on her son. Jesus himself says that's not true. But here we also see the folly of our own manipulative ways. This is only the first of many attempts by many, many people to, to divert Jesus from his agenda. 
sometimes by uh, well-meaning family and friends, sometimes by his enemies. And they still continue today, those attempts. How often even we have come to the Lord with our plans and our agenda and our goals, asking him to bless them with success, oblivious as to whether or not they might comply with his will. But Jesus will not have it so. If he would not compromise his agenda for his mother, he won't compromise it for you or for me either. Truth is, I suspect some of us sitting right here this morning are playing let's make a deal with God. Oh God, if you will do this for me, then I will follow you. Lord, if you will give me what I want, this job or a certain boyfriend or a change in my miserable situation, then I will trust you and serve you. Oh no, no. Jesus would rebuke you like he rebuked his mother. He calls you to be his disciple, subject to his agenda, surrendering your plans, your concerns, your commitments to his sovereign will. If you call him Lord, then let him be Lord. Don't tell him what's best for your life, what he must do for you. Don't tell him how to solve your problems, when he must act, what kind of miracle you expect from him. No, you are called to trust and obey him. As Jesus pursues his plans without compromise. Oh, but when he does, as we see in our text, his plans are good and they're right and they're full of grace. Mary did not leave disappointed. Whatever she might have expected, it was less than what happened. Nor were her friends, the bride and groom, disappointed. Here we're still talking about their marriage 2,000 years later. And you will not be disappointed either when you subject yourself to his good plans. Finally, there's a third wonderful lesson for this text. Jesus purifies us by the wine of his blood. Jesus purifies us by the wine of his blood. Looking back on my life, I've been very close to some important events sometimes and didn't realize it at the time. I saw John F. Kennedy in New Orleans as a young person just shortly before he was assassinated in Dallas. I was going to school in Birmingham Alabama in the 60s when Martin Luther King was facing police dogs and writing letters from the Birmingham jail. In fact, I happened to be riding through that black neighborhood and saw all the commotion on that Sunday morning in 1963 when someone bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church and killed four little black girls. I've been close to some important events, but I didn't feel the weight, didn't see the impact of those things at the time. But isn't that just kind of how it is? Oftentimes the most profound meaning of an event is not understood at the moment. Only later when we look back on it do we see its impact. And then we realize that what we saw uh, uh, pointed to some greater things to come. Now, I think that was the Apostle John's experience here. 
in regard to this miracle at the wedding feast. As he watched what Jesus did that day, I'm sure he felt the joy of the occasion. As he heard the exchange between Jesus and Mary, I'm sure he understood that their relationship had changed. And we know from verse 11 that as the water was turned to wine, he and the other disciples put their faith in Jesus, believed in Jesus in a way they had not before. But 50 years later when John writes this account, In the context of the ongoing life of the church, I believe he understood something about this that he had not perceived at the time. That this miracle was a sign. A sign. Pointing to the great truth of God's grace. That Jesus purifies us from sin by the wine of his blood. Let me tell you where I see that in our text. John tells us plainly, that the miracle is a sign in verse 11. This is the first of his miraculous signs that Jesus performed. So the question is, a sign of what? As we study the passage, we must be asking the question, a sign of what? This is clearly John's focus. This is a sign. Well, as we look for indicators, for clues as to what the sign might be about, certain words begin to jump out at us. Uh, Verse 4, Jesus says, my time has not yet come. What's that phrase mean? What time is he talking about? Or in verse 6, the water pots were normally used for ceremonial cleansing. Is that significant? And then the fact that this is a wedding feast, is that fact itself significant? In verse 11, we read that his glory was revealed. Might that be a clue? Here we have... Four clues that I can find as to the meaning of the sign. So let me look briefly at each of the four. First, in verse 4, Jesus says, My time is not yet come. Now, we don't know immediately what that means, but the rest of the gospel tells us that. Um, In chapters uh, 7 and 8 and 12 and 13 and 17, Jesus uses that phrase. My hour or my time has not yet come. Or in the later verses, my time has come. The hour has come. And in every case, Jesus is speaking of the hour of his death. Jesus had one agenda when he came into the world. And everything was done in pursuit of that one agenda. So even this first miracle was a sign pointing forward to the hour of Jesus' death on the cross for sinners. It's a sign saying that Jesus will purify us from sin by the wine of his blood. Second clue in verse 6, the water pots were normally used for ceremonial cleansing. Think about this matter of the pots holding water for the cleansing of the guests. Those cleansings were just just one of the many, many purification rites uh, practiced in Judaism, all of which could never really remove the guilt of sin. But John the baptizer in the chapter before this had just said, look, there's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. And then what's the first miracle? To take jars filled with water for purification and turn it into a wine, a substance used regularly as a disinfectant better than water. The significance was not lost on John as he reflected back on it. He said, Oh no, that's a sign that Jesus has come to purify us with something better than water. 
Purify us from sin by the wine of his blood. Third indicator of a sign, third clue. All this happened at a wedding feast. Any significance to that? Well, the book of Revelation points to the coming glory as the wedding feast of the Lamb. The celebration as the Lord, the bridegroom, receives his bride, the church, which he has bought and purified with his own blood at the cross. Indeed, the the early church understood the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, to be a foretaste of that great wedding feast to come. So John doesn't miss this sign at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. At a wedding feast, Jesus speaks of the hour of his death, the time that had not yet come, and then turns the water of purification into wine which will signify his cleansing with his blood. Jesus purifies us from sin by the wine of his blood. Finally, verse 11 says that in doing this miraculous sign, Jesus revealed his glory. That's exactly what we heard at the beginning of this uh, gospel in verse, chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh, and we have seen his glory. But what exactly was so glorious? It was his grace. That's what we learned back in chapter 1. It's his grace. His grace that was more gracious even than the law. So now a chapter later, we have a sign and his glory is revealed. What kind of glory might we look for? The glory of his grace. And indeed, that's what we find. Jesus takes the water used for ritual purification under the law and turns it into wine, thus signifying the glory of his grace of more perfect cleansing as he comes to purify us from our sins by the wine of his blood. See, John wrote all of this in the context of the New Testament church years after it happened. That church, by definition, then and today, is the fellowship of the forgiven, the purified people. These people meet each Lord's Day to break bread and drink the wine in remembrance of the fact that Jesus' body was broken and his blood shed to purify us from sin. So is it conceivable that John failed to see in this miracle of wine coming from purification pots and failed to see in the later miracle of bread coming supernaturally to feed the 5,000. Is it possible that John failed to see any connection between those signs and Jesus' body and blood given for his people? It's not conceivable. I'm sure John did not understand it all at the wedding feast that day, but I'm equally sure he did understand it when he wrote this gospel. This miracle was a sign that Jesus purifies us from sin by the wine of his blood. And folks, this is a truth we desperately need to hear. Where can we go for cleansing? What can we do when our lives are hopelessly polluted by sin? Is there any answer to our desperate condition? Oh, I proclaim good news to you today. The good news signed by Jesus in this miracle. Jesus purifies us from our sins by the wine of his blood. 
as Keith Green so beautifully asked and answered the question in his song, Oh, what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and with wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew in the wine of your blood. This morning as we come to the Lord's Supper, all these things, these shadowy bits and pieces, become very tangible and real. We don't see vague signs and suggestions and hints anymore. We've come to know the reality. Christ died for our sins. His body hung on a cross. His blood was wasted, bled out onto the ground. All to pay the penalty of our sins so that he might purify us through and through, making us clean before him forever. And how plenteous is this grace poured out to us. This grace we so desperately need. Will it be enough for all our sins? Well, it's like 150 gallons of wine for a dinner party. There's going to be plenty. More than you can imagine. Grace greater than all our sins. This morning we come to celebrate what was signified from the very first miracle. Jesus purifying us from sin by the wine of his blood. This is the goal which Jesus pursued without compromise all the way to the cross. And this is the ultimate joy of salvation with which Jesus blesses our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, thank you, Father, for your grace. Communicated to us in so many different ways, in, in signs and hints and foreshadowings, and then, Lord, in, in history, in events and eyewitness accounts, uh, 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 records written down and preserved for us that we might know of the greatness of the grace that you brought us in Jesus. Oh, Lord, may we not miss it. May we not be so busy with our own Ideas and so caught up in the things that uh, enamor us that we miss this truth that's greater than all others, the truth of the gospel. Help us, Lord, as we think about these things and mull them over, Lord. Help the roots to go deep down in our soul and change our perspective and change our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.